Hello and welcome to this episode of the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review Podcast Series. In this series, we're discussing the latest developments in English oil and gas law and what it means for the industry. I am Philip Ashley, a dedicated energy disputes lawyer at CMS. I am joined today with Eleanor Lane, a specialist shipping lawyer from our Glasgow office, and David Rutherford, a specialist oil and gas disputes lawyer from our London office. In this episode, we'll be discussing the chapter on uh, crude oil and oil product shipping in the 2020 CMS annual review. And in particular, we'll be looking at the issue of the making of claims and the role that supporting documents plays in the making of such claims where time bar provisions exist. David, would you like to talk about the first case that we highlight in this year's annual review? Thank you, Philip. The first case is the Amelie Esberger, which was decided at the very end of 2019. The case concerned a charter for the transportation of cyclohexane. There were delays in discharge, which exceeded the permitted lay time by some 11 days. The owner claimed demurrage to the tune of $150,000. The charterer argued that the demurrage claim was not within an agreed time bar, which was 90 days from the completion of the discharge. The time bar clause required claims to be with all supporting calculations and documents in a single claim. It then went on to say the claim must be supported by then a list of certain documents, which included pumping logs and letters of protest. The claim itself was made one day after the completion of discharge, so within time. But the pumping logs and the letters of protest had already been submitted some 21 days earlier. The questions for the court were whether supporting documents were only required where they were relevant, and secondly, whether supporting documents must be submitted at the same time as the claim, i.e. even if the charterer already has those documents or if the documents are submitted after the claim. The court held in respect of the first issue that having a list of documents made it clear that all of those documents must be provided in support, even if they are irrelevant. On the second issue, it was held that there was no clear language requiring supporting documents to be submitted at the same time as the claim. The only temporal requirement was that those documents should be submitted to the charterer by the end of the time bar period. The fact that the claim did not refer to the pumping logs and letters of protest did not detract from the fact that the charterer already had them there was no need to resubmit those documents. As such, 
it was held that the claim was not time barred. Thank you, David. Um, Eleanor, would you like to uh, talk about the second case uh, dealing with this issue in the annual review? Thank you, Philip. The second case deals with a situation where Tricon Energy chartered the MTM Hong Kong from MTM Trading Limited under a charter party dated 13th of February 2017. There were delays in both loading and unloading the vessel at Antwerp and Houston respectively. And a formal demurrage claim was submitted, attached to which were various supporting documents. These included a demurrage invoice, demurrage calculations, timesheets, a statement of facts, rate logs, and letters of protest. What was not included in the supporting documents were the two bills of lading for the two parcels of cargo which had been loaded and unloaded. This was important for two reasons. Firstly, because clause 10 of the charter said that if delays happened, the demurrage was to be prorated according to the bills of lading. And secondly, because clause 38 of the charter required all supporting documents to be provided along with any claim. The charterer asserted that the absence of the bills of lading meant that the claim was not properly submitted and was therefore time barred. The owner argued that the claim was sufficiently documented in the statement of facts and anyway one of the bills of lading was not available. Initially the tribunal found for the owner, i.e. the statement of facts was sufficient, even though both parties had agreed that the statement of fact was actually inaccurate. And therefore, according to the tribunal, the claim was not time barred. The commercial court, however, on interpretation of these particular clauses, said that the reference to all supporting documents and the fact that the bill of lading was specifically needed in order to calculate the claim meant that the bill of lading must fall within the requirements of clause 38 and thus be a supporting document which was required. The court also felt that if one of the bills of lading was not available, then the owner should have narrated that fact. Accordingly, the failure to provide the bills of lading meant that the whole, the whole claim was time barred. Eleanor, thank you very much. David, turning back to the first case, what general principles do you think can be taken from that case that have a wider application? Yes, well, these cases are illustrative because it is typical for time bar provisions in charter parties to have requirements related to documentary support. Parties to charter parties vary in their approach to whether the documents required um, should be listed in a set list or referred to generally, perhaps as all supporting documents. Regardless of which type, um, there are certainly uh, a few principles we can take, certainly from uh, the first case. The first principle is 
that it's very clear that the courts are aware of the commercial purpose of a time bar provision. And that is to ensure that demurrage claims are brought within a short period of time after the discharge has completed. This is to ensure that the facts are fresh, and what's more, and importantly, that the charterer is in receipt of those facts relatively promptly, um, so as to understand the claim. Secondly, um, time bar provisions can operate to prevent or exclude what would otherwise be valid demurrage claims. As such, in the traditional case law in this area, um, the approach has been very strict to the interpretation, um, including contra preferentum, i.e. the owner seeking to rely on the provisions, forgive me, the, the, the charter is seeking to rely on the provisions, would traditionally have had those provisions read against them. Now, this case clarifies that those older cases need to be reviewed in the light of more recent Supreme Court and Court of Appeal authority on the approach to the interpretation of contracts, i.e. you look to the natural and ordinary meaning of the words, uh, the commercial purpose and the factual background. You should only look to, to contra preferentum and those other old principles uh, as an absolute last um, resort. Finally, uh, the court made it clear that there's no set principle or automatic requirement um, for the documentary requirements in a time bar provision to be strictly complied with. The court notices that parties prefer certainty uh, to strictness, um, essentially a substance over form argument. And you see this sort of out, out of these two cases, there's an element of practicality in the court judgments um, going alongside the interpretation of the contract. So in the first case, there's no rule uh, that documents have to be supplied simultaneously. Uh, with the claim. And in the second case, uh, there's, there's guidance about what to do if certain of the documents are missing, i.e. you simply state that effect. David, thank you very much. Um, Eleanor, uh, turning back to you, an interesting fact about the case you were talking about is that it was heard before the case that, that David was summarising, but the decision handed down after do you think the two cases are consistent? Yes, I, I think they are. Um, they, they deal with slightly different points, but but um, Tricon, again, highlights the, the risk of withholding or simply failing to provide all of the, the necessary documents. Now, it, it's slightly trickier in this case because there wasn't a list so there was no pre-agreed exhaustive list of these are the things which you must provide. Um, there was simply this reference to all supporting documents. And it's clear that these are needed in order to justify the claim. And particularly since the bills of lading were referred to in the charter party as the means by which the demurrage was to be calculated, 
they quite clearly fell within the category of all supporting documents. Um, two, two other interesting little takeaways from this case. The, the owner made a suggestion that the bills of lading were confidential and therefore shouldn't be disclosed, but the court held that they could be redacted. And the court also held, and that this might be something that, that David's going to come back to, um, that if, if a bill of lading was not available, or presumably any other supporting document, that that should be explained and that that might well be adequate. Eleanor, thank you very much for that very interesting summary. I, I thought it was interesting that really what the approach the court seemed to be taking is, in the case that you looked at, is the purpose of the all-supporting documents was to verify what was being said in the claim. And the bill of lading was necessary to verify what was being said in the claim because of the Pacific Clause 10 requiring tomorrow should be calculated by reference to that. Uh, and that's an interesting approach at looking at what is required by all supporting documents. David, going back to, to you, what do you think the takeaways from the two cases here are for those drafting uh, and seeking to follow uh, these sorts of time bar provisions? I think the the issue of certainty is one that parties would want to pick up on. Certainly, the court understands that that's what parties uh, want to have in their contracts, which is perfectly understandable. From that perspective, one takeaway might be um, that using a list of documents required to support your claim um, can at least give both parties certainty as to when a claim uh, is validly made. Uh, there was another case decided shortly after the Amelie Esberg, uh, M-U-R Shipping and Louis Dreyfus, that was a non-list case. It referred to all available supporting documents. Uh, and there, a survey report wasn't relied on when the claim was made, but it was relied on later on in disputes as to the quantum of the claim. Uh, and therefore, the court held that the claim was time barred because the survey report was an available document, but it wasn't supplied at the time uh, of the initial claim. Uh, so you can run into difficulties by the inexactitude of referring to all supporting documents. It can be better to actually create a list. That would, that would go back to the similar uh, approach that I was just discussing with Eleanor, I think, David, that where the words all supporting documents are used, the, the approach of the court seems to be whether the document is needed to verify something you're saying in your claim. And, and if it is, um, then it will be required. Eleanor, um, just before we wrap up, um, do you have any further thoughts to add to what David said there on uh, drafting and implementation points? I think um, two two quick points then from me, just as we finished the the first picking up on, on something that you've both said, which is around the, the distinction between uh, supporting documents and all supporting documents or available documents and all available documents um, and the difference in 
in what what might to someone who's drafting feel like quite a small point, but actually will be looked at quite closely by a court. Um, the other interesting takeaway for me is the need, particularly in the second case, to to look at the contract as a whole. So just because something perhaps isn't referred to directly in the claim clause um, might not seem necessarily to be required if it has been referred to somewhere else in the contract um, and and is important or necessary in order to substantiate the claim, then it should be included. Otherwise, you do run the risk of your claim being time barred. Eleanor and David, thank you very much for those interesting insights. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you all again in the next uh, podcast on the CMS Annual Review on Oil and Gas Law. Thank you very much. <laughs>